Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. This podcast is brought to you by The Joyful Fashionista, an online marketplace for buying and selling secondhand and sustainable clothing. Make cash selling as you declutter or buy sustainable and fabulous fashion. You, my frugalisters, and welcome. Today, I have a special guest, and of course, all of my guests are special. Today's guest is someone who is passionate about financial independence and women, and works especially with women who want to rebuild financially after divorce or separation. Helen Baker is a licensed financial advisor and founder of On Your Own Two Feet, a service dedicated to empowering women gain and retain their financial freedom. Helen has a master's degree in financial planning and not just one, but a second master's degree, (laughs) this one in innovation and change. And she also has a bachelor of commerce in accounting. Helen is author of two books, On Your Own Two Feet, which was originally published in 2014, but then revised and republished in 2019. And a second book, On Your Own Two Feet, Divorce, which she published in 2018. Helen has been a finalist for Australia's Financial Advisor Planner of the Year and has twice been a finalist for the Women's Community Program of the Year. Welcome, Helen. Hello. (laughs) Well, you're extremely well qualified to talk about money and especially money and women. Yeah, which is kind of good because the new world means finfluencers who are saying certain things out there in my world are not allowed to do so anymore. So, yes, hopefully the qualification does mean what happens (laughs) is... On the tin is the tin, yeah. (laughs) Well, actually, let's go there a little bit because a number of other podcasters that I know in the money space have actually stopped recording because of Mm. what they were doing. Now, I don't have – I'm not a financial planner. I'm not licensed. I don't have an AFSL and I I don't give financial advice. But are there things that influencers like me should be worried about? Well, I think it's that line, you know, where what is that perception from people that you're actually giving advice when you're talking? You know, they talk about general advice and they're going to change that to be general information, I think, and then specific advice because there's a lot of things that are said out there, somebody trying to push an investment or a philosophy, they're getting paid to do that as opposed to financial advisors who are actually being paid for their advice, must be licensed, and you would probably be astonished to know how much we pay for our licences per year. I think I probably would be astonished, but I guess that leads to another question, which is has good common sense financial advice become unaffordable? Have these changes meant that the average people can't get sort of common sense financial advice? That's the really sad part, particularly for me who is trying to help women do that. And over the years, you know, people who came to see me many years ago if they came now, unfortunately would would be passed over because they just don't have enough, which is the problem because it's those people who actually do need the advice and we've got to find a way to be better and certainly pushing with a lot of politicians about this at the moment. They've sort of swung the pendulum, unfortunately, too far. What they were trying to do was good. The consequences of what they did, though, has meant the people who need advice can't get it. Mm, It is really hard. And I'm always always, I guess, amazed that what I think is fairly common sense isn't common sense. And I hear some Mm. horror stories, and I'm sure you do too, about people who've lost money in whatever the latest scheme is, particularly crypto, and this is not an anti-crypto rant. It's just they've seen something that's 
the, the next best thing, the next sexy investment. They haven't considered what their risk profile is. They don't understand it. They go in mm. boots and all and they lose a lot of money. Yeah, and again, that's people focusing on an investment strategy or more an investment, actually more an investment product. And the thing that I love is actually the strategic advice. So to me, it's about strategic advice and investment advice. And yet people focus all the time on the investment and they're missing out on these opportunities to look at strategy. And that's where a lot of things fall down. And it's actually what makes the role that we do really interesting. So there was a time, and actually not that very long ago, when most women were encouraged to marry well because their man was their financial plan. (laughs) Now, Jane Austen, of course, wrote a lot about this. The subtext is so-and-so and so, Mr. Whoever has so many pounds you know, 10,000 pounds a year or 20,000 or 50 or whatever. And you sort of laugh at a bit of that now, but for a lot of women for a lot long, that a long time, that was their financial plan. Yeah, definitely. The old Pride and Prejudice and Downton Abbey (laughs) or Downtown Abbey as I joke. Yeah, thank goodness. I'm glad we don't live in those times anymore. I just think women have so much to offer and being trapped in something like that where they don't get to pursue their career. I mean, everybody's wired with such gift and talents. So being able to use those and then be paid for it and have the option to work full-time, part-time, all these things that are available these days that weren't there before is fantastic. So much opportunity. Even right now, jobs that people probably couldn't get before, they're able to get in now because there's so much demand for workers. It's fantastic. So yeah, great opportunity for women. No more glass ceiling. There's the sticky floor they talk about now. But (laughs) yeah, there's other things, you know, women on boards, women starting their own businesses, continuing their businesses. So the luxury of that, and men say to me, oh, Helen, you know, you're being anti-men. I said, no, I'm not. Wouldn't you prefer that the person that you're married to loves you for you and likewise, rather than it being about money. Mm, that is empowering. And I think, yeah, you would want someone to know that your your significant other loves you for you. And if you do love someone in return, why wouldn't you want them to be the best person they can be? 100%. And so it means that now people stay together. They don't just get married for money. They stay together because of love and not money, hopefully. Hope. <laughs> There's still, you know, culturally arranged marriages and there's still all sorts of things. Um, Mm. But even with the ability to choose your calling, women are still disadvantaged by the gender pay gap, I believe. Mm. Yeah, we've got a lot of issues. Gender pay gap, obviously, a lot of people are aware of. Also, the retirement gap. And then I talk about in my latest book, the career choice gap. So again, talking about our gifts and talents, women have such a nurturing role in terms of caring, whether it be nurses, aged care, childcare, all very, very, very important jobs. We have women who are engineers now. We have a range of options. But the problem we have is such a proportion of women who are up this end or down that end in terms of the salary band. So whilst we've got gender pay gap, in my opinion, one of the biggest problems is actually career choice gap. So career choice gap, I haven't heard that as much as I've heard the gender gap. I think maybe because I made the name up as a way to sort of express what I was seeing, you know, or hearing or when you're researching and you you find out what are the issues that are around. And I thought, 
Yeah, it's not gender pay gap, it's not retirement gap, it's actually an issue about the choices that we make as a career, not only as the type of job that we do that we love and why, because alternatively get people doing jobs they don't like just to get better money. Mm. But it's also around this career choice about women choosing to work part-time or full-time and how does children come into play with that? What choices are they making to try and balance all of these off as well as, okay, if I do want to only work three days a week, maybe I can't do that higher level job. I have to drop down to this level. And obviously this has changed a lot over time, but it's still got a long, long, long way to go, not just in Australia, but around the world. Mm. And then of course, there's that whole question too about traditional female roles not being remunerated as well. And during COVID, we just all saw suddenly how important teachers were and nurses were and everyone else. Yeah. And interesting, uh, last night I was at uh, an event that Nina, the, the Lord Mayor's wife, spoke at about charities and I was not aware. She works like 40 hours a week. She's here, there and everywhere. She does not get paid at all. So this is the Brisbane Lord Mayor's wife. Right. Nina Shrina manages the Lord Mayor Charitable Trust. She's an exceptional woman and she probably would donate the money if she was paid. But it's like, hang on a minute. I just assumed... This was, you know, it's like a part of the package and she's doing enormous work, as did and Quirk, as did Lisa Newman. They were all doing these things, but I did not realise it was unpaid. Can you imagine, like, some of these jobs that are out there where if it was the wife that the husband just, you know, was an admin assistant or was an assistant and was unpaid? Yeah, it doesn't happen, but it's, it's amazing how these things are assumed. In my previous role, I was a diplomat, so I was with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and the early ambassadors, the expectation for many years was that their wives did these kind of roles, that they were the ones organising who sat where at events and sending out the invitations and having women's things. It was sort of expected, once again, that it was a package deal, Mm. that she would give up her career and she would become devoted as the wife of a diplomat to making sure that these things ran smoothly. And it was sort of a role that was sort of overlooked. And I think it's only now that they realise that actually, no, they do actually need specialist staff to be paid Mm. appropriately to perform this role. Yeah. And again, I think it's that reflection on society about valuing women. We need to really start to value women because if we start to value them in this way, that spreads across to other areas, which deals with some other issues that hopefully can get solved in society as well. (laughs) Well, we can't solve everything in this podcast, but what I (laughs) would really like to talk about is some of the work that you do with women who are going through separation and divorce. So how did you get really interested in focusing on this area? Yeah, so what I was finding when I started out with On Your Own Two Feet, that I used to say I'm the best female financial advisor under my license in Queensland. I'm also the worst because I am the only one. So (laughs) women, female financial advisors are so few and far between. You are the only one, the only female financial planner. Under the license that I'm under in Queensland, I was the only one. So, you know, obviously there are other licenses and they have women there but we are such a minority. So I always joke if you go to a conference, you know, we never have to queue for the toilet. The men have to queue for the toilet. It's like (laughs) it's really good in one sense, but not good. So what I found was there were a lot of women coming because they felt safe. 
they knew they could say anything. They weren't in fear and they weren't, you know, felt like they were going to get put into some crazy product. They felt like they could ask a question without feeling intimidated. And so they were coming and a lot of them were coming with divorce, widowed, terminally ill, unfortunately, like lots of issues that are real and not knowing where to turn. And a lot of them had money, but had just never managed the money. You know, they didn't understand it. And so there was a lot of fear there. There was a lot of concern, uncertainty. Do I have enough for my future? And obviously for women who are mothers, it's very much about their children. And so what I realized was they're making a lot, a lot of mistakes. A lot of them were coming after they had settled. And so they had come in and I was like, but what about this and this? And it was quite costly mistakes. I mean, that's the thing in our industry Mm. is like you get a boo-boo it's not $50. It's big money when it's wrong. So I thought I'm going to write a book that helps women understand why they need to get pre-settlement advice or get some pre-settlement financial understanding before they sign on the dotted line. And then, then they can go ahead because a lawyer cannot give you financial advice. An accountant cannot give you financial advice. It must be from an advisor. And the one thing I do know, having done this for a long time, is the devil is in the detail. The deeper you go, the realise you go, wow, you know, there's things here that could trip me up big time. And, you know, that's my experience too, is that there are a lot of devil in the detail and especially when it's not an amicable situation. Mm. You know, on the surface things look fine, but like when you get down, it's really difficult. And in my case too, because I found it really triggering dealing with my ex, I didn't want to look in the detail. So mm. <laughs> a lot of times in situations like where it's, not amicable. There's other issues going on. For a lot of people, it's like, I just want out. I just want it to end. I just want to get on with my life. But after a while, it's almost like when you have an injury. After a while, you better, you're back running again, or you're competing or whatever it is. And you think, oh no, I lost all this time if I'd have done this differently. Or in this case, it's like, okay, if only I'd have hung on for that, or if only I'd have got better advice or made a better decision. I would be in a better position now. So it's really, there's still choices you may make just because that's the way it is. But I think it's about being informed and and understanding the big picture because generally for, certainly for me, I mean, I do get a bit emotionally involved with it, but I'm trying to look from an outside and I know that eventually they will get through to the other side. So I'm trying to think of the future as well as the now. Mm, I can imagine that would be hard when you see people suffering from the stakes they've made. And what are Mm. some of the common things that people don't get right? What could they be doing differently to get better outcomes? I mean, you've talked about seeing a financial planner early. I think one of the hard ones for a lot of the women is the home because it generally is the home. Now, look, obviously, if it's not not been a pleasant place, it's easier to just get away from the memories. But if it's something that the kids are close to the school, you've got your friends around there, there's a whole community, it's very disruptive to move them. And there's a sense of like, oh, we want to make sure the kids are okay and that everything stays the same. And I think in all my years, there's probably been twice where it's actually made sense for the person to stay in the home. For others, it's like it just it doesn't work. It's not affordable with everything else because, you know, housing is very expensive. So you go from two incomes, maybe two incomes, one retirement plan, one home to 
single income, house each, retirement plan each. And then you've got to bring in the difference, what we talked about before with career choice gap. What is the income? How are you going to support that? Are kids in private school or not? All of this needs to be thought through. And sometimes it doesn't make sense to hang on. It is a hard decision. I had a friend who was going through that recently as well, and she loved her house. And once again, close to schools, nice community. It was a lovely house. And she asked me and I said, well, it's your own decision, but you've also got to think, how many years do you want to be working? Like, do you think about the sort of mortgage you're going to have to take on? Like, how many Mm. years are you going to be having to work to afford this? What kind of sacrifices are you going to have to make? And I think Mm. that's the point where she started doing some sums and went, oh, yeah, this is really going to extend me. And similarly, if you go, okay, well, what if I just downsize a bit And then I have money that's invested and generating an income for me that allows me to either work part-time or allows us to go on holidays and do some travel and do some other things. So you start to get lifestyle back. So again, it depends on the person. It depends on the right timing for all of these things. It depends what's in the asset pool, other things that you can draw from. There's a lot of things. There's no right or wrong answer. (laughs) And (laughs) that's what makes it interesting. So yeah, if the people are listening, don't panic. There can be solutions. There could be like, sure, stay in the house for the next two years with the vision that then you're going to let it go. Who knows? You know, it's it's certainly a specific, specific to your circumstances about what is appropriate and when. Mm. What about superannuation? This is always one that I, comes up a lot. And I do think I mentioned this one in the book because generally, again, over the years, my experience has been the husband is very attached to the super and will often use terms like that's my super and you can't touch it and they don't want to let go of it. And they don't actually, sometimes the women who read my books then have to go and educate their husband that actually, yes, that goes in the asset pool just like everything else because they actually were able to generate that super because perhaps the wife was working part-time or staying at home looking after kids and getting kids to sport and you know, it's a team effort, but generally it's viewed as I worked, I put my super in, that's mine and and you can't touch it. The thing that is good is that you can slide. So you can trade over super from the husband's to the wife's in a settlement, has to be done in the appropriate way, obviously, but it can be a way to boost women's super. In other cases, we do it differently. <laughs> I, I'm laughing because I was the main income earner in my divorce, so I lost a third of my So super. yours the other way. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and it was a domestic violence situation too, so I was really, really shirty about having to give a third of my super to someone who had been abusive. Yeah, and again, that's tough because there's the emotional connection with that as well. It's like that that feels like it's really unfair, and I think that's where we kind of, as I say to a lot of my women, you know, just go through the step, the step, and then look back and go, look how far I've come. Because the focus for me with people is how do we rebuild you? The quicker that you get control over everything, the faster then you can make decisions over your situation, be in control of decisions. Because this is something I've seen over the years as well. I often see with respect that a lot of the men either do nothing with the, so a lot of people sitting in cash and self-managed super funds or in a term deposit or something like that, or they've been in crazyville and they've invested in all this sort of nonsense over here that's really not worked. And so when we do something more measured for women that is managing risk in a sensible way and is like not one extreme or the other, 
then that's growing. And it's so their ability to recoup faster than if they just stayed in this thing for years and years. It's super in itself is just a structure. It's about what the investments are that are underneath. And sometimes it makes sense to take some of his super and sometimes it doesn't because there's some other tricks at the trade for one of my clients we're doing at the moment where I'm saying, don't take it because we're going to do this through a different way. And it's what I call stretching the money. So you look at, okay, well, if this is what I've got, or this is what I'm earning, this is what I'm paying in tax. But if I implement this strategy, I reduce the tax and I give myself more over here. There's lots of things you could do. Who knew finance was fun, right? Everybody thinks it's boring. It's great. <laughs> I don't think it's boring. I think the concept of having more money is is amazing. But I, I think you've touched on a really important point, which is the sooner you do get out of a bad situation and put it behind you, the quicker you can rebuild. I often do say that when you are in a happy and positive place, then abundance is going to come. Mm. Like it's really hard, for instance, I'm, I'm quite interested in startups now. Yeah, It's hard to say have the next multi, multi-million, billion-dollar idea and implement it when you're in an unhappy relationship. <laughs> I often have to say to some clients, what is this actually doing to mental health? The longer some of the fights go on, and look, there are times when you should hold your ground and fight, and I've certainly seen that. The other way where we, somebody just said, oh, I'm just going to sign off on and we talked through certain things and then they hung on and they got better outcome. There are some other people, though, where it's dragging on and the legal costs combined with the mental health and what are they invested in and everything's kind of stuck and you know what I mean? So sometimes, again, it's a personal one. Every situation is different. But it is definitely worth asking the team that is around you some quality questions because getting control over your situation, and as I say to some of my clients, there are things that we can get control of now. As this goes on, we might pick up this and this and this and get control over that, and then you'll be totally out in what I call post-settlement phase. Then it's all about the rebuild, total control over everything and start moving The thing is that the positive outlook, when you can get control and make quality decisions about your money, that's when you're going to see the impact. But your point is correct. It's like, it's hard to focus on that when you're in a cyclone, just spinning (laughs) all the time. It's like, it's crazy. Exactly. You can't build something new, can you, when you're in the middle of a cyclone? No, it's not happy. So you talked about a sliding scale in terms from separation to the total kind of control of your money. And actually, I haven't heard it phrased in in those terms because often I I find that people sort of see it as almost that things happen the moment you leave or that they Mm. happen the moment the divorce comes through. But of course, the divorce coming through is one thing. It's the consent orders coming through is another. How do you work with people in this sliding scale? What are they doing in this kind of interim where things might not be as fair as they they would like? Yeah. So what I talk about is pre-settlement phase being the first one. And that's generally when you're getting the, the the lawyer on your team, the financial advisor, sometimes you need an accountant of company or significant investments are involved as well, and the emotional side. And then we start to dig down to where is your income going to come from? What's in the asset pool? What are the things you need to consider? And look at like some options around, well, what if you took this, this or this? What does that look like? And then you move into a phase that takes a bit of time move into a phase of what I call negotiation phase, which is really where you start to wrap it up now with your lawyer because you've got, okay, maybe a few options that says, okay, if they offer that, I'm good. If I offer two, it's like, oh, it's not great, but Helen said she could do this and that from there, so I'm okay with that as well. 
three is a no way, do not sign. There are different things. And then you get to post-settlement phase, which is when the money starts to move around and everything starts to get cleaned up in its final phase. And then, yeah, that rebuild phase, which is totally all about you and uh, and protecting you from the next relationship. I know people say <laughs> never again, but they do. They find somebody sometimes and it's like, okay, protect what you've got with some binding financial agreements. But that's maybe a story for another day. Well, I did read Remarry and we went through that whole discussion too about BFAs and actually in the end, for various reasons, we decided not to. But that that mm. said, we were having lots of honest discussions about money and we worked out our financial situations were actually quite similar. So, But yeah, yeah. I, I hear you. Both of us had heard nightmare stories, my husband in particular, through the mm-hmm. dating scene. He had gone on a date with a woman who had divorced her husband. I think she owned the ham- family home, so she'd done okay. And she was dating this guy. It wasn't going that well. She was going to break up with him, but then he got injured and she felt sorry for him. He had a workplace accident. Mm. So she continued to allow him to to stay at her home. And then, then she broke up with him. It was clearly wasn't going anywhere. And he said, well, we're de facto, so I'm taking 50%. Yeah. And this is a big issue. So we talk about in the bigger book, the non-divorce one. I don't think I talk about it in the divorce one, what I call an STD. So sexually transmitted debt. I remember Kerry and Kennelly on Studio 10 loved saying that word. But, um, yeah, so these things can happen, you know, simple as signing up for somebody's mobile phone plan, getting loans with them, the partner not having income protection or those five foundations that I talk about in the book because no one has ever passed my five foundation test in like 13 years, so ever. So there's always something to tweak in there and making sure that you've got that underpinning you and the same for your partner because if it's not, they're going to come looking for you. And even parents, right, and your kids, anything falls down around you, oh, mom, you know, we need some money or we've got multiple generations living in the same place together and it's the woman that carries the load most of the time. So, Mm. yeah, I won't say all the time because somebody will send me a nasty message. (laughs) But it is the majority of the time well, they're the looking re- after the in-laws. The research you know. does suggest that or does show that women do more of the household chores. So, yeah, I, I'm very fortunate that my husband does a lot. Although he's away a lot with work too, but when he's here, he does a lot. He will be editing this podcast, so he's definitely going to be hearing that. Oh, bless. <laughs> Make sure you edit the nice bits. <laughs> <laughs> he will do a good job, I promise. But in your book, you do talk about the phrase Disney dads. And I think this is Mm. an important thing to think about. It's not just the two people getting divorced, it's the children and Mm. what's happening with the children in terms of the messages they're getting about money. Yeah, that's a really good point because there's a sense of obligation to keep everything the same for a lot of women, you know, keep the kids in the same school, in the same sport, doing all these kind of things. And obviously the older kids get is, you know, are they wearing the right shoes that's in trend and all of these things. So there's a lot of pressure there. But you are actually sending a very strong message about how you manage money. So if you actually help your children to understand, okay, there was two incomes and now we're down to one, or this has happened, this is all we can afford now, we make some choices. And I will argue that the biggest thing, so I have a friend who's a nanny for some wealthy people for years and around the world. And the one thing she said to me was, these kids, are, some of the behaviour was a little bit out of kilter. She said, they just want to spend time with their parents. They just actually want to be with their parents. So spending time with your kids as opposed to giving them 
staff, obviously, yes, you want to give them stuff and you want to do things, but helping them understand that, okay, it was like this before things have changed, you're actually teaching them about how to manage money well, because otherwise down the track, these are the kids that have the unreal expectations about housing, they have massive credit card debts, they have all these other problems down the track because they're used to just having, having, having with not understanding things change, whether you keep your job, lose your job, get sick, have a divorce, you know, something happens. So it's a prime opportunity to reset the values, educate your children about money, and also help them understand that just as much as they want to spend time with you, you want to spend time with them. And lots of things, surprisingly, can be done for free. The things in the parks, you know, go on any website and and your book, you know, find out about all the things that you can do that don't cost a lot of money, but are quality time and be kind to yourself as well not your responsibility to do every single thing. And if you promise kids they were going to get a car when they turned 18 or 17, the the goalposts changed. And so, okay, you might be able to let them stay at home for a bit longer on less board. I don't know. I'm sure you can think of something creative. But, yeah, I think you need to be realistic or else the downside is who's going to be there to support you down the track when there's not enough. You're right. I think the biggest gift you can give your kids is living a good life yourself because they model their behavior off you and they learn from you yeah totally I totally believe that's monkey see monkey do and and again you know you can look up and you can always be chasing after the Joneses but I've seen some of the Joneses early in my career who on appearance it looks amazing you know the big house the cars the kids all lined up to go to private school Then I see the debt on the other side that you don't see as you're driving past. You just think, wow, look at them. And you you aspire to have some of this. And look, some people can achieve that. That's great. But for some other people, it's like, this is just a pressure that is unachievable and is actually just going to make everybody unhappy in the big scheme of things. You've touched on something really important, which is you don't know what other people's true financial situation is. Mm. You don't. All you know is yourself and to keep yourself in your own lane. Some studies in the US, for instance, indicate that up to a quarter of families might have financial assistance from their parents, so grandparents paying Mm. for education and so forth. And you don't know how much is real, how much is on credit card and not. And of course, I've been listening to the podcast about Melissa Caddick, who of course you would know being in the industry. And what a shocker. Definitely all that glitters is not gold. No, 100%. And that one, I mean, my, my dear Lord, like, that you could do that to your own family is, wow, I don't have words. It's really sad. And for for those who don't know, she represented herself as a financial planner. She was not actually registered. She stole someone else's registration and she wasn't actually investing. It was a huge Ponzi scheme. So I want to be very clear here. (laughs) This This does not represent the financial planning industry. No, definitely not. And that's the sad part because they're the sorts of things that put people in fear mode because, you know, I've said to the to before to people, it's like, you know, when you're out there, how would you know where to go? Who do you know who to trust? It's really scary. It's your money. You just don't know. And, and yes, there are really, really good people out there, but unfortunately there's a lot of sharks in any industry that is, not just our industry, but in any industry. Yes, you're right, in any industry. But in your industry needs to be a particular trust relationship mm. anytime we're talking about money. So yeah, 
Mm, yeah, exactly. And to your point, you know, she was not licensed. She was not being monitored. It was all fraudulent in the sense of stealing somebody else's license. So it's all bad, 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 really. Mm, exactly. Mm. So don't do that. <laughs> Make sure you follow Please someone don't. who is qualified and has the appropriate licenses. So one final question, which is, do you have a frugalista tip to share? Yeah, so I think I kind of just touched on it a little bit before, actually, you know, don't keep up with the, try and keep up with the Joneses because they're often unhappy and get divorced themselves. You know, it's a bit of a hamster (laughs) on a wheel. But I think my trick would be to say there is always going to be somebody richer than you, but there is a far more amount of people who are poorer than you. And the opportunity to sort out your own finances to have a nice life whilst you can still gift and support others who are less fortunate than you, I think we're only on this planet for really quite a short amount of time. Sometimes it feels really long. Sometimes it's like it's really short. But if you could change somebody else's life or even just change their day by doing something that's charitable and assisting someone else who is worse off than you, I think that's the privilege that we have as women is we have big hearts and we need to be kinder to ourselves, get ourselves sorted, but help others at the same time. That is just so beautiful. And I agree with that. There is just so much joy that comes from giving, especially giving Mm. from the heart. So now where can people find you? Yeah, so I'm on the interweb on onyourowntwofeet.com.au. Books are hopefully in store. If not, please ask them because we do donate the funds from the book to charity. The more that we can sell, the more we can help people in the first world, such as hopefully people listening to this, but also we move the money to help people in the third world at the same time. So two for one or hopefully thousands to one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And if you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I have, be sure to join the Facebook group, The Joyful Frugalista and connect with other frugalistas who have a passion for saving and investing. Thank you very much. God bless. Bye. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. And, of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. Star